Hello, everyone. This is Shannon Morgan, and you are listening to Episode 5 of Sound Mind, a place to openly discuss the struggles in our minds, including mental health, trauma, addiction, and more. I'm not a counselor, and the podcast is not meant to replace professional therapy, more like somewhere you can go to find connection and learn about how other people's experiences can aid in your own journey. Speaking of which, I work in the field of behavioral health as a peer and youth support specialist. Working with adults and children, I share my lived experience with mental illness, trauma, and addiction in order to connect with clients and help them see that they are not alone. And that is the spirit that I'm bringing to this show. The website for this podcast is soundmindpodcast.com. There you'll find social networks, learn more about guests, and where you can leave me a comment or send me an email. And I would love to hear from you, especially if you'd like to be a guest on the show or you have a reaction to an episode. Now, on to today's guest. Maelstrom is a 43-year-old non-binary queer person from Boise, Idaho, who now lives in Seattle where they moved in 2019. They came out as non-binary gender fluid in early 2019, changed their name in 2020, and they now use the pronouns they, them. They were raised in an abusive household where they were kicked out on the streets when they were 18. Maelstrom went through two quick marriages by the time they were 28, culminating in severe alcohol abuse and a near suicide. It was then that Maelstrom started doing stand-up comedy, which they eventually used as a platform for social activism, which is now part of their daily life. Mental health has always been a part of their journey, and it's only been recently that they have had the opportunity to receive adequate health care for it. This is the first of two episodes with Maelstrom. They had so much to say that I couldn't actually fit it into just one. So I hope you enjoy this and I will see you next week for episode two. Let's get to it. Hello. Hi, how are you? I'm awesome. How are you? I am doing well today. Thank you for asking. Well, I'm pleased to hear it. Well, how would you describe your personality? Uh, Mercurial, but warm. Oh, good word. I'm a, I mean, there are some really big influences in my life. I think that determine who I am. Uh, one of those obviously comes from, uh, I was forged in a lifetime of child abuse as the oldest of five children, which kind of gives me this combination of overprotectiveness and, uh, just extreme sensitivity. So, uh, I think my psychiatrist once said that I have an overdeveloped sense of justice because of it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's one of the reasons it's really easy to find me, uh, just on board with whatever, thing is going on. So I just become an advocate really loudly because the injustice of it really triggers me. Yeah. And I'm okay. Yeah. I'm okay with that. Like, uh, I don't really consider it harmful. It turns out, uh, I actually get a lot of positive feedback from people, both in sending me messages where I say things they can't because of job or life or whatever, Mm -hmm. but also because it gives them permission to be more outspoken themselves because I get away with it. So why can't they? I think that's pretty great. I always experienced you as like a firework, just a, a bright explosion of <laughs> color and personality and opinions. And, you know, and you're there and, and sometimes it's a wonderful show. And sometimes you're like, how do I feel about this? I'm really uncomfortable, but it's probably good that I'm uncomfortable because I need to be, if that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. I, you're not definitely not the first person who said that. I mean, I know I can have a polarizing effect because I make, I can make some pretty quick judgments and I'm usually pretty good about, you know, reading people, but it, it can be difficult if you're an extreme person to get along with every personality type. So 
I mean, that's just a fact of life. Nobody gets along with everybody, but if you're outspoken and forceful and just intense in person, it can really rub people the wrong way, especially if they just don't like that. Or if whatever it is that makes me and whatever it is that makes them has conflict, it can exacerbate really quickly because I'm stubborn and I don't back down and yeah, I'm loud. Yeah. So, and, and I was referring uh, mostly to, I think like I'm a, I'm a peacemaker. So I'm, I'm political. I want to call people out and like, I want to cause political change, but I also want to bring people into the fold and you're kind of like a, no, this is how it is. Like this is wrong. And, and I don't care if you're in the fold, like, get the fuck out of the way if you're not going to be in the fold. Right. Well, it takes a village. I, I like to say that I'm not part of the diplomatic core. Like <laughs> when I'm okay. So like just to a common thing. So let's say I am in the Idaho Statesman comment section and there's people being racist. I will just go, you're racist. And they'll try to have a conversation either through sea lining, which has actually just happened. Someone, uh, uh, the Statesman just posted an article about Ammon Bundy and how uh, the tribe uh, I'd have to look it up which one it was, uh, basically said people shouldn't go to his meeting on their land. And my first comment was, well, yeah, he's a domestic terrorist. Yeah. And that's just, I mean, because he, he is. And the, one of the first comments was, prove it. You know, I'm like, and so, I mean, my reaction, instead of going through the whole process of dealing with your sea lining and being like, well, here's all the things he did. I'm like, look, you're, you have Google, look it up, pull your head out of your ass. And uh, they don't always know how to react to that because they're used to this good faith argument of bogging people down and listing all the things Bundy has done. And and she had already said, well, that's just your opinion. And I'm like, because somebody else fell into that trap. And I was just like, look, you're not, I don't care. <laughs> like, yeah. I just don't, I'm not here for your feelings. I'm here for the neutral people or the people who agree, but can't engage either for whatever reason, anxiety or personality, or they just don't have the energy. Like mm -hmm. not everyone has the spoons for conflict, but I was forged in abuse. So while it does affect me, all it does is kind of feed into the cycle. And I just try to point it in healthy directions instead of acting out in ways that are more detrimental to myself and the people around me. Yeah, that's a, a really good way of, um, well, what your therapist said, in fact, is now like making me think about my own life and going, oh, well, hmm, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Like, <laughs> She's really smart. Like, uh, yeah, like uh, it, she diagnosed me uh, as ADHD in the first five minutes that we were talking. And I had a long time of being uh, treated in, um, in Idaho. And that was just never a diagnosis that came up. And we can go all the way back to childhood where literally they're defining ADHD in the paperwork that I still have when they're describing me as a kid. Yeah. You know, like I have extreme focus. I'm clever. I owe, I got, one of my teachers used to call me the second hand, fastest hand in the West because I always knew the answer. Yeah. Like, and, uh, but then they would also say, but I have a tendency to daydream and lose focus if things aren't interesting. Like, you know, if I already understood that I, I came into kindergarten learning how to read and they immediately struggled because I got so bored teaching everyone else how to read. And I was just, I couldn't understand at that age why other kids couldn't read yet. I was just like, why are we wasting all this time learning? I know these things. So there's pros and cons. <laughs> yeah, that describes me to a T. I'm like, I'm, I can connect 
uh, ideas super duper fast. So school was always fun. Like I always enjoyed school because it was not that hard for me. Um, but if it wasn't interesting then, or I wasn't in charge, I, I love to be in charge of things. <laughs> me I mean, too. it's my favorite thing in the whole wide world and it can be really boring, but if I'm in charge, then everyone's going to be having a blast at doing the boring thing. It's a necessary role. And I think a lot of times we push people away from it because they look at the negative traits that's associated with being assertive, you know, and they'll say that you're bossy, but you know, like when our, when our chat before we started recording, I really do appreciate your type A inclinations because you do simple things like making sure that I have water and my phone's turned on silent. And cause you just don't know if that's already done. You're making sure that it's done. And I, cause I'm very not type A, I appreciate people checking off the list. Cause I'm just not going to do that. Right. Like I'm either going to remember or I'm not, and I'm just going to flow. And that's not always conducive to an environment. So I tend to work really well. Like, and a matter of fact, most of my partners have actually been pretty type A because I would rather accept all the things that come with that. Yeah. They're, um, they need specific things a lot of the time. Like I'll just eventually remember how you want things. And then I just won't worry about it because I don't actually care. <laughs> Which is <laughs> like, okay, I mean, we'll do it your way. I, I don't care. I want us to move forward and do things. So yeah, that was a, uh, Yeah. <laughs> That's another thing with the ADHD. Like it's something that I needed to know because, or I need to make sure of to make my podcast good. So it's a fact I memorized right away, like uh, a step that I needed to do and it was no problem. But there are other parts of this that I have to do that are uninteresting to me and uh. don't involve talking about mental illness and, you know, like having a good time with people like figuring out what makes us tick. And those parts of the podcast are just grueling. And I can read the same instruction 25 times and not be able to see it, not get it, <laughs> not, not remember it, not care. I mean, it's so frustrating. But I remember the water and I remember go to the bathroom and turn your phone off. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm luckily because of a lot of the things I've done in my life, I've been interviewed and I've been recording and I've had my own podcast. So some of these habits are pretty... You know, I leave my phone on silent because of my social media activity. I get too many notifications, yeah. so I just can't leave it on. So it's just always quiet. But it also means you can't call me unless I'm ready or I just won't see it. You know, unless right. I'm staring at my phone that minute, which I probably am. <laughs> <laughs> it's just an appendage, really. It's, uh, turning my phone well, upside I mean, down is hard for me. It's difficult, but like also, I mean, especially in relation to ADD and ADHD kind of stuff, like having your hands engaged in something while your brain's engaged in something while you're getting the dopamine from new information is something that's so perfect for what we need mm -hmm. that it's hard to put away because it's not just the phone. It's literally the drug that our brain doesn't produce is being fed to us on a consistent stream. And so it's almost like it's almost adding a value to our life that we kind of require. Yeah. Like, and so that makes it extra hard. So like, you know, I was talking to somebody, you know, yesterday and how they're like, yeah, I just put the phone down. I did some yard work and I hung out with a kid. And I'm like, that's a long time. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I have to be doing something like I could be swimming or I could, you know, but like, I'm still checking my phone. Like I'm not, not doing that. So yeah, it's, that used to be me with the social media, but I've, I've really cooled it with a, I kind of went through a phase. Well, I was assaulted a few years ago. And after that, mm -hmm. I've kind of just turned into myself and I'm not near as out there on social media. It gives me anxiety, like the arguing about politics and having someone attack me. Like, even though I know that, that it, like normally it wouldn't bother me, but after that, it's bothered me. 
Um, yeah, but then trauma can do that to brains. Like different parts of yourself will manifest yeah. and other parts might hibernate. Like, I mean, all of that still lives somewhere inside of you and might come out again at some point, but there's not like a timeline. Well, if like, I ever made myself go back to, to therapy, that would super duper help. But I'm, I've been, <laughs> but the, the, the whole pandemic is the phone, the phone therapy has been hard for me. I haven't wanted to do that. It's difficult. And getting a therapist can be difficult. Mm -hmm. Like, because you need somebody that matches with you in a good way. And like that, you know, you actually get value from. Mm -hmm. And I know they all want to help, but not everybody can help everyone else. Right. Which, I mean, of course they know, but sometimes it doesn't seem like they do. And that's not a judgment call. It's just like, I'm fairly well educated about this, the things that I have in my life. And I, I don't always have the patience to educate as someone who should already know those things. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a trait I have, but it makes it difficult. So my last therapist and I stopped seeing each other mostly because like I had to explain spoon theory to her and that's like 101. You know what I mean? Yeah, that happens a lot. I took my daughter to a therapist and she said she was non-binary or I'm not not non-binary, bisexual. And the therapist Mm -hmm. said, so, so how long have you been transgender? And oh yeah, like, uh, like I'm not transgender, but I actually was doing a podcast about, um, uh, how hard it is for the black community to find therapists because they have to, they, most therapists are white. And so when they go mm-hmm. to therapy, they have to educate the therapist about black life before the therapist mm-hmm. can even begin to apply any therapeutic principles to them. No, that's, yeah, that's not good enough. Yeah. Like, I mean, if you're good, if you're going to, if you're going to work with people who are dealing with that kind of racial pressure incessantly, you need, I mean, honestly, I just feel like it would, you would just need a black therapist. Cause I don't even, I don't think white people and I am super white. I just don't think no, no amount of education, no amount of advocacy, no, no amount of allyship will ever teach me enough for me to really understand what people go through that deal with that on a daily basis. Oh, like, I, I agree. just can't. That's why it's a crisis. Yeah, Cause there's just no, yeah, there's 100%. Just so, so few um, people of color who are therapists, not just black therapists, but native therapists. And I mean, you, I can go on and on and on about it. It's, it's a huge problem and finding quality therapists, like forget about all of that and just deal with quality therapists. Like current right. information. That's not from the sixties. You know, it's like they stopped learning at a certain point. Right. And, you know, it's like any kind of medical care. Like there's, you know, there's a lot of people who have the degree, but not a lot of people who are meant for the job. Yeah. And, you know, and and a lot of times you just gotta be like, look, like I'm really lucky. Like I moved up to Washington last year and just the perspective on medicine is different because in Idaho, which is where I'm from, uh, you know, like if I have a medical problem and I need it treated and I do have severe medical issues, like I have severe asthma, you know, I've got diabetes. I have stuff that I need to be seen for. If I can't afford it, the attitude in Idaho is like, well, I guess you're screwed and it permeates it. So like the receptionists and the pharmacists are all used to saying no because you can't emotionally engage with no. But here, if I have an issue, the staff is just so like, oh, well, what do you need? Like we have answers and they have the tools to help you and it helps them a lot. Yeah. So like I go to the... Go ahead. Sorry. Oh yeah. Well, I was going to say like, I go to the clinic downtown Seattle. So they see a lot of people that don't live in houses and a lot of people who are trans or have a lot of mental health Mm -hmm. issues. And they are the most peaceful, 
calm. Like I have watched people come in there and just yell and scream. And the receptionist, this guy, I really love him to death. He's just polite. And he's like, oh, I totally understand. They even have a security guard, but I've never seen them use security. Like they just talk everyone down. And I'm like, that is not something I'd be, I'd expect to see in most Idaho medical treatment where they're so used to people needing it. They're just trying to help, you know, like, yeah. I think and that really, I feel affects the medical staff because I can't imagine being in a healthcare uh, field and then not being able to help people. Like I, that would just, it, is, just it is hell. Even, I mean, cause I work as a peer support specialist and uh, all the time I hear about, we, we, we just recently, well, not recently, I guess it's been a, a few months, six months, maybe a year that we've expanded Medicaid. So finally mm-hmm. people are able to get healthcare. But before that, I mean, I'm having to scrounge to find resources for people to get medicine so that they can just, just get the medicine so they can normalize long enough so that they can get the therapy so that they can rebuild their lives. Um, yeah, like even getting the medicine's impossible, and the medicine is so expensive unless you're on generics. But the appointment yeah. to get a gener- generic medicine is one hundred and seventy-five dollars, and then you get the five-dollar medication, which is just stupid. Yeah, it's and it's all. I mean, it, it's just that conversation on medical access. Like I, because I'm, you know, because of everything, I'm not working right now. I qualify for Medicaid, which you know that we have the Medicaid expansion up here anyway. And, uh, so I had a phone interview with a pulmonary specialist. We talked for 15 minutes and the bill before insurance was $350. Yeah. So like, it's so cost prohibitive that if I didn't have insurance and that money and they even like that money is just because that's how the system works. Like there's no reason for 15 minutes of his time to be $350, you know, cause he's not making $350. Like some of it's the hospitals and it gets cut all this and different the insurance. ways. Yeah. But the insurance takes a bunch of like, mm-hmm. it just, it's, it's wild. So I, you know, I look at that and I'm like, okay, well, you know, I mean, like on the plus side, this is, a, it's a patch. Since we don't have access to medical care, they have these patches, but it doesn't fix anything. So people like me who have medical needs can see somebody, but this puts me in a position where if I make too much money, I need then to have private insurance or I have to stop making money. So, cause I'll die. <laughs> like right. I don't have a choice. So like with my health problems, if I can't, because a a one asthma inhaler can cost 50 to $60 over the counter. And that's not a lot of money, but it is if you don't have money. Yes, exactly. Like, and and then this is like, well, you hear all the stories of other diabetics who have to like partition out their insulin and then die because they can't afford insulin and insulin costs pennies to make. Yeah. It doesn't cost it's basically free and we still charge people more and they die from it. Like to me, that's just the whole system is messed up. <laughs> yeah. And, and there's no one that seems to have a, a solution really um, that I've heard. Okay, it's a whole long conversation that would take yeah. us off topic. But yeah, totally off topic. Whole, <laughs> yeah. But not really. But I mean, the system... The system just needs to be, the whole system, and I'm talking about everything, needs to be built around the needs and not the profit. So like, because we aren't focused on the needs first, because if you look at the needs, if we just look at something like people who are houseless, the houseless community, pretty common in a city like this, uh, there's a lot of reasons why things don't happen. And all of those reasons are connected to access and money. Where in a better system, it would be like, well, let's create a system that actually helps people, a pathway for people to get back on their feet, homes for you to stay in and take a shower, clothes for mm-hmm. you to take so, so you can go to interviews. But because we don't focus on the need, we focus on, well, how does this cost? Then 
everything about these people. They end up living in tents. They get pushed around. They get they get put in the system because the cops, the cops in Seattle definitely are not equipped to deal with people who have mental health needs. No, so like for addiction, so the whole. Yeah, it's just, it's the whole system is just, it's built around what people can make off of it. Like, and when we talk about the medical system and mental health is a big part of it, you know, like, cause when they started cutting mental health stuff, especially like back in the eighties, we, you know, we used to have a lot of stuff in California where, you know, you know, big mental health hospitals. And then when Reagan became governor, he just got rid of them. And it just, just, nobody really understands like that was just their solution. We just can cut this out of the budget because they cared about cost, not about need. And you can still see that in the conversations today about medical care. Cause like, even if Biden gets elected, he, he's not interested in making sure everyone has healthcare. He says things like medical is a right on, or healthcare is a right on Twitter, but he has said he would veto a bill for Medicare for all. Like, even if we pass the law, he'll get rid of it according to what he says he'll do. Right. So it's difficult. Like even the Democrats, and obviously I'm much further left than Democrats, but even the side that's supposed to be fighting for people still has a line where the line should be, how do we help the people that live here and worry about costs later? Because the cost is a business decision and governments aren't businesses. I don't care what they say. It's about the people. We should be here for people. But, you know. <laughs> so, and that was all these are all excellent points but let's move on to some of our questions because otherwise we'll talk yes, about healthcare for an hour which i would love to do yeah, another I mean, podcast <laughs> well let's get to um, more learning more about you um can you tell okay. me about your childhood your formative years all right okay so i was born in 77 to a young couple uh who had met in uh bsu when it was still a business college my mother's deaf and uh, she is also, and this is my diagnosis, so it's not accurate. She also has narcissistic tendencies. Okay. And this is, I, I could give you the traits as you just experience her. It always becomes super obvious. She's very selfish. Her ego is the most important thing. And she acts out violently if you do anything to destroy the image she creates of herself. Mm-hmm. And it's difficult for her to experience. Or I've ne- I, She's my mother and I've never seen her shown empathy ever in my life. For anything. So it's just difficult to deal with her. So when she was young though, because I she was relatively healthy. My parents were pagans when I were born. They were they were they were bell bottoms. My dad told a story about because he used to work at the Pullman Brick Company, which was near downtown Boise. He was the son of the man who owned it, my grandfather, George Pullman. And he was wearing bell bottoms on the top of one of the brick kilns that they caught on fire. Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> and so my dad was cool. He was going, he worked at Kmart. He was in the management training program, although he had been trained as a computer programmer in the seventies when they were still using cards and it took up a whole floor. So by the time I remember things, my dad is actually now he's working with computers and my mother is the young and they started having kids on the oldest of five. So they had a daughter two years after me and a son two years after that. And Kenneth, who is the son, he was born with a cleft lip and palate. So that was their first special needs child. Mm. And uh, as we aged, the tone at home changed a lot. They went back into church, which is in itself not necessarily a negative thing, but it became an extreme thing that became more extreme with time. Mm-hmm. So as the timeline continues on and they started homeschooling and they started, they started getting involved with all this, they got involved with more fringe Christianity. They joined a church called the body, which, uh, 
and a lot of weird stuff that went with that. Like they only believe that 144,000 people would get into heaven. They believe that you could only get into heaven if you became perfect. So like you don't lose sin when you go to heaven, you have to actually get rid of sin on earth, which I don't know if you've read the Bible, but good luck. Right. <laughs> like, right. So and this all manifested and it's not just the religion. It's, that's only a manifestation of some of the other stuff. A lot of un- unhealthy things happen and a lot of it's based around my mother. Now, my mother has a tendency, she's done this twice now, to find men who are relatively well put together, but allow her to do whatever they want. So the dynamic is she gets away with what she wants to and the men defend and support it. Uh. So as children, my mother says, we started fighting when I was five and we fought every single day of my life until I was 18 and they kicked me out. And that's not true. I did go to church camp a couple times and uh, <laughs> did I did you get to make jello mold Jesus. I got to do that when I was a kid. Oh God, no, we did videos and I got booked in a lot of school plays as the narrator. And I just remember thinking as plays. a kid, how like really sick and wrong it is to make jello mold Jesus and then eat him. Like just, just seems so not, funny. not cool. Anyway, sorry. Continue. Yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> this Jesus is made out of hooves. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah. It's, so the, the, the violence at home and like a lot of people who dealt with, with childhood, I still deal with phrasing and uh, the way of looking at things mentally that people who deal with childhood abuse frequently do. Mm-hmm. Like I did and still occasionally do the other people had it worse, you know, like, mm-hmm. like we were never sexually assaulted, which great. No child should be sexually right. assaulted. But that's where the line was in my brain when I started. Well, at least I'm not being sexually assaulted. Yeah. And like, if you imagine where as a child, you have to be where that's the first thing you think of as a positive. It's not a great place for a kid to begin. Right. Like, so my conflict with uh, authority started there. So, I mean, this is what I'm talking about. Like I was forged in this. A lot of my personality just molded around this constant conflict at home, shaping me and my personality traits coalescing around always being in conflict with a large, physically aggressive adult who was not, uh, not, not against threatening, manipulating, lying about their kids to, to, for any reason, just to make herself look good. So as we homeschooled and she had full control over our lives, things really got off the rails. And as a method of processing, I am actually starting on an autobiographical work to document a lot of these things and explore them out as a writer to help process what I haven't come up with. That's a good idea. It, it helps like yesterday or the other day I made a, I made a post about something my father said in reference uh, a Seattle police uh, Portland police, one of those two said something very along the lines of people are bringing shields, which they considered an aggressive act. Bringing a defensive thing is an aggressive act. And I liken that to when my dad used to say that he would hit us twice if we tried to block the first one. Yeah. And this is a common line in physically abusive households. I don't know where parents come up with these lines because that is a sick thing to say to a child. But like... That was just a normal thing my dad said. And I forgot that because why would you keep that in your active brain? <laughs> it's yeah. just not, 
This hurts me worse so, than it hurts you. That's what I remember. Right, stuff like that. Yeah. And, and, and I, I would call bullshit immediately. And this kind of maybe goes back to just my personality. And one of the things that was a big struggle for them is I am just, I refuse to be dominated. I refuse to say no. I still challenge authority at work all the time. Uh, the manager at Whole Foods a couple of years ago made me shave my hair. I made it a public because I, I turned, I, I uh, dyed it pink. Uh, I made it a public thing because I have the audience. He, he uh, called a meeting with HR and then started to cry. Oh my gosh. And, well, like, and so normally when a man in a power position uses tears, it's a manipulation tactic. And I don't really care if it is or not. You're the store manager. This is your fault. So I was nice-ish, but I was playing to the HR woman who I had cultivated a relationship with because I'm political and I was trying to get her to laugh because you know he would say things and I would counter him because you'll run into this a lot especially with older liberals because they used to be at the forefront of everything and then they got stagnant when the world continues to move to the left they find themselves in positions that they can't defend because they consider themselves to be progressive but they're just not anymore yeah like it's not their fault I mean I do say that you're responsible for your own growth, but you're a store manager at a uh, whole foods. You can't have his pink whole hair at, at whole foods. That's a thing. Okay. This is actually whole foods. And mind you, this is before the acquisition. This is not an Amazon thing. This was whole foods responsibility. Wow. <clears throat> whole foods, their employee of the year was a man with a three or four foot Mohawk who had raised a bunch of money for one of the many charities that they donate to. But I had a pink mohawk. Now, I do actually find mohawks to be problematic and it's not something a white person usually have. So mine was designed in a way to not look native and I was just trying it out. I actually wasn't even planning on keeping it, but I, I'm a ginger, so I never dyed my hair before. My hair is what other people want. Yeah. So like, I'm lucky. Like, uh, and, and especially since, especially when I have long red hair, it's vibrant and it shines, it shines in the sun. And uh, I just wanted to try it out. So he immediately said I couldn't do it because the store manager gets to make that decision. And he decided that he was doing it off the feedback of people who complain. What I pointed out was that he was then allowing bigots to determine store policy because nobody who agrees with it is going to say yes. So if you're only surveying the no's, then that's all you're going to get. You know, and then he tried to defend himself by saying, uh, I, f- I wear fingernail polish. My, they're pink now. They're very bright colored usually. How some people, when I was a cashier, wouldn't go through my line because I had fingernail polish. And I told him in the meeting that the correct response to that is our employee follows all standards and expectations of policy. If you have any questions, I'd be happy to send that to you. Here is someone you can contact if you disagree with me. That's what you're supposed to say as the manager. Mm -hmm. And he didn't. He took it in and he was like, well, my employee just has to change who they are or how they present themselves. And he, and so this is just in my nature. (laughs) Like I'm the person who has that conversation with the manager because I'm not like, what are you gonna do? Fire me? This is a service job. I don't even need this on my resume. I don't care. I'm a comic. Nobody is checking my references when I tell jokes. Yeah. Like I don't, nobody cares. So I was like, this as a child, this means that I was always in trouble at school. Uh, even if I was wrong, I would, I was wrong a lot. <laughs> I, uh, so sometimes you were defiant for the sake of being defiant. It's a, it's a thing that you just, 
you just get in the habit of doing. You're so used to challenging everything that's said to you because my mother would just reshape reality. My father once said that if my mother told us the sky was purple, we just had to agree with her. We weren't allowed to disagree. Mm -hmm. And I, in that, you know, I was like 10 and I was like, yeah, it's stupid. I'm not going to do that. Like, I'm just not going to let my mom walk around saying shit like the sky is purple. Like, okay, I mean, you're crazy, but why would I do that? Like, so when it happens in authority figures, we as a human species, it's advantageous for us to want to get along, to submit to people who are in charge. That's good for everybody, unless that person is not healthy. And that makes it difficult for people to speak out. And I happen to be one of those people who don't, it's not a challenge for me to raise my hand and be like, okay, yeah, but why? Like, yeah, I do the same why thing. does this really exist? It's actually a trait of ADHD and autism. I need to well. understand. It has to make sense. It has to fit what the standard is and it has to be fair. Like I have a very strong sense of fairness mm-hmm. and a barometer inside me. And anytime I see injustice, I'm like, no, that's, this cannot stand. Right. And rules by themselves should be explainable. If you can't explain a rule for a simple reason, why does it exist? If it's a rule that's for the company or bureaucracy, I'll even accept that. I'll even accept uh, somebody with a suit four levels higher than us decided this and we're stuck with it. I don't like it, but I'm like, okay, yeah, you're just doing your job. I won't challenge that person anymore. I might challenge it with somebody higher up the food chain, but I get that. Uh, But it's difficult, you know, uh, when it's your parent. So I was taken out of school relatively like after sixth grade, because in both the fifth and the sixth grade, the system had assigned me to a teacher who couldn't control me. So they had to transfer me in both grades to another teacher. So that teacher who had another skill set would try to get me under control because they just didn't have that. When I moved up to Washington for a couple of years, like 86, 87, so I was like eight or nine, the state of Washington, King County, recognized I had these issues and immediately started putting me into a weekly therapist session, mm. which is something that just doesn't exist for the most part in Idaho. No, not that like, I heard. Where there's like, right. So like, so for me, I was, that was my first time that I ever actually talked to a mental health professional and all they really had me do is sit down and talk things out. And they would sometimes give me projects. Like they had me make a styrofoam airplane once. And like, I have vague memories of all that, but my grandfather died and we had to move back to Idaho when I was like 10, 11. So that was taken away. Cause once I came back into Idaho, you, you know, it's just like, okay, well you're just screwed up kid. Good luck with that. You'll grow out of it. Well, I don't even think anyone assumed that. I I sometimes think a part of it is the preconception people have that gingers are hot tempered. So I think sometimes I'm given more permission to be hot tempered because people expect it of me. Oh. Like I, I don't know if that's true, but that's been my experience. I'm hot tempered and I can joke about it. And people will be like, Yeah, that's just what gingers are like. And I'm like, Is it? No, that's not a I would never say that. <laughs> I would have like never, never guessed that or assume it. That's weird. <laughs> yeah, it's just a thing. And I don't know if it's just because the association with red or whatever. Yeah. And, and the fact that we're just rare in general. So it's easy to believe things like the Romans thought we were vampires. So, mm-hmm. I mean, so um, in junior high and high school, I was trapped at home. I wasn't allowed to work, wasn't allowed to get a uh, driver's license for a really long time. Still being homeschooled. Like, 
right. Just being at home, like we moved away from downtown because we used to live on Willow Lane next to the athletic complex when it was being built, the park. And then we, we moved, we moved all the way out to like five mile and you stick, which, I mean, if you're not from Boise is way the hell away from anything. So like, we're talking all the way by like, uh, no, not five mile and you stick five mile and Amity. We're talking about almost all the way to Lake Hazel. So even with the sprawl now, there were houses out there, but you can't walk anywhere. The nearest thing is a maverick and it's a mile away. So like you could go to the, the uh, bowling alley. So I was basically just at home with my siblings and we were all in this really unhealthy, violent, abusive situation. And it created a really wild dynamic. Mm-hmm. So when I left that violently ejected, uh, my, when I was 18, I, I had got my GED. Now we were largely self-educated. My mother just refused to teach us and my dad was working. So after a couple of years on like some uh, satellite schools, which is where uh, they send you the material and then you send it back. Yeah. So all the teacher has to do is just babysit. My, my, my parents couldn't even do that. So the last few years of school, I was basically just self-motivated. Luckily, the GED isn't that difficult to pass if you try. You know what I mean? Like if you're educated, if you're, if you're uh, mentally at the place where you could do it, you could probably study and pass for the GED within a few months. Like it's not supposed to be hard. Like I even got my high school equivalency without a single class in, uh, social studies since elementary school, because it's really not that hard to remember the three branches of government. Like, (laughs) I was like, okay, yeah. And this is kind of what they do. So, uh, I entered adulthood without any socialization skills, uh, outside of church where I was not popular. Mm -hmm. I really struggled in getting along with people and building relationships. And that affects me to this day. And that I still struggle to believe that people actually want to be my friend. Mm -hmm. Like, I'll accept you as a friend because, but I'm always like a little suspicious. Like I've got that, that, uh, like that look on my face, like, okay, but like, a, <laughs> what do you really want? Like a, yeah. Like I was a feral house cat that moved into your house. So like, I mean, yeah. I like you, but maybe you'll attack me if I lower my guard. When were you first diagnosed with a mental illness? It's really uh, the first time someone actually said to me that I might have a diagnosis. It came up with a general practitioner at some point, I want to say in my late 20s. Okay. And this was this was after I had already gone through two quick marriages. And the second one was very tra- trauma filled and ended with uh, me putting a gun in my mouth. Oh. And, uh, and this was just a situation with my ex-wife who, uh, also suffers from extreme mental illness. She uh, was really big on self-harm. So she's covered in all these knife scars and it really isolated me from everyone else. And I got really caught up in that because, uh, sometimes when you're in those relationships, you get codependent and you start to feel responsible for that other person's mental well-being. Yeah. So I spiraled and I, it's not like I was stable at the time. I hadn't been an adult that long. And, uh, I How just kind of, when this happened in mid twenties, oh, mid twenties. Okay. Yeah. Not so, that long uh, after you left your parents. Right. Like, I mean, it felt, you know, it feels like a long time. I had already gone through my quarter life crisis and got a massage therapy degree, which is where I met this woman mm-hmm. and Misty and I are friends to this day. Like I understood, like we're close and we understand each other and we really are supportive of each other. So I was just in a really dire spot. And so at that point I started taking my mental health more seriously mm-hmm. and I joined AA. Uh, I got bored when I realized I wasn't really an alcoholic. I was just dealing with a lot of shit and using alcohol as a 
method of dealing. And Mm -hmm. so uh, through that process, I don't know if I was encouraged, but I was dealing with some new health problems where then my doctor, I want to say Dr. Nasser from Boise, uh, suggested that uh, I start getting treatment for mental health. So I didn't have insurance. So uh, it was talked about, but I was never really medicated. I basically just had to develop my own coping mechanisms for a while. So you weren't like diagnosed. They weren't like, here's at least a diagnosis that you can use to build skills around. It was just like, you're probably mentally ill, but you don't have health insurance. Sorry. Right. And I do actually have uh, the mood cycles of someone with bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. Like I can go into hypermaniac states. I can go through depressive episodes which can take weeks or days or hours and they can switch very rapidly. This does overlap with some of the things that can happen with ADHD. So it's difficult for me at this point to know exactly what the diagnosis is. But I and also know that- It's hard to mistake um, from ADHD. It's a lot different. Like, I, I understand what you're saying. Like, they're similar, but mania, when you get manic, it's not like ADHD. It's totally different. Yeah. But I mean, like, I don't have anything other than my own personal experience to draw. Sure. From. Sure. So, like, things in, in the current age, we have access to all this information online, and there are communities that you can join and you can find out, you know, things about yourself if you think something might apply to you, right. you know, whether it's gender, sexual, or, uh, or mental illness, you can just go find people who already have this and just find out what it's like. And I do definitely 100% click more with the ADHD stuff, right? Like my psychiatrist literally sat me down and was like, okay, this is the list. And then she was like, and this is why, like, she was really fine. And this is all the reasons why you have ADHD. And like, and it was a really high score. (laughs) It was a really high score. Like I missed like one to me, question. Just from knowing you from my, my personal experience with you, definitely. I mean, it could oh, yeah, scream sure. ADHD. I can see, <laughs> I can see how you would scream mania, but mania for me, when I get manic, it's like, I'm gonna, you know, lock myself in the arbiter for three weeks and not shower and barely eat and create 87 podcasts and a whole, you know, Bible full of newspaper articles about um, people in the war who have died because it makes me sad. Right. I mean, uh, that's mean. Which is why I don't necessarily use it as often and we're not necessarily treating me for it. Uh, Like back to the psychiatrist also knows is that at this point in my life and since I've been without treatment for so long, a lot of it really is just I have coping mechanisms and Mm -hmm. I'm very, you know, like they're resilient. I am Mm -hmm. here. I'm actually doing way better than before. Like I get healthier the older I get. You know, like that's great. Trauma, trauma is a process that, you know, I am just always going to have trauma that I'm always going to be processing. And I'm okay with that. That's just my life. Like it's not, it's not controlling anything. So like the, the, when I was younger, like in my twenties, I definitely had those manic type episodes where I would sell all my furniture, like just really random shit you wouldn't do if you were in a healthy set of like frame of mind. Like and, and and then my sponsor at the time who I was living with identified that and communicated that with me because I didn't have the information that that was an abnormal thing to do. Sure. Where you would just wake up one day and get rid of everything you own. Like, why would I do that? Yeah, like, that does sound like manic behavior. <laughs> right. But I don't, that doesn't, that doesn't manifest in me anymore. Like I have impulses and I do struggle with impulse control, but there's no point. Am I just going to wake up and do any of those things? Like I'm not, 
I do struggle with sleep cycles tremendously and I can go days without more than an hour of sleep if I'm not medicated, but like, yeah, it's so it's a, it's definitely a diagnosis I've moved away from identifying with, but it's, it's not really anything we've even really addressed much since I've been in Washington and yeah. we've been treating me for the well, other there are different types of, of bipolar. So maybe you just have one that's more depressive episodes than manic episodes and you don't have that. It's many. possible. Yeah. Yeah. They've, they've got me on a host of some medications cause I'm being treated by a lot of stuff. Uh, but most of the physical things are the ones that we focus on. And like during my last doctor's phone appointment a couple of days ago, she did bring up, how long it's been since I've seen a psychiatrist and made sure that I wanted to get, you know, like I was going to be okay, but yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, we're pretty much focused on trying to find ways to assist me in finding coping mechanisms uh, because my expect, my, my goals now are to be sustainable. Mm -hmm. Like the idea is that, and, and this is something I do struggle with is to be able to take care of myself. Whereas previously through most of my adult life, I have used my wits and charm to find ways for people to be supportive. And I still have that. And I do believe that's necessary, but I am not currently, I think, capable of just being on my own. Like, and that's a hard thing to admit to yourself, but it does start from a point that at least I can be honest with myself, you know, like, but this has also kept me in relationships years longer than I need to be because it offers stability. I can't have on my own. I'm not going to have my own apartment, you know, like I'm never going to own a house. Like I live just, with my just, parents because yeah. I, I don't want to be in a relationship because I have to be, you know, when I, when I find someone, I want to be in it because I want to be, but having right. them here is like, keeps me grounded. It keeps, they can help me see when I'm getting depressed or when I'm getting manic or when I'm getting anxious. Cause I don't always see it. I'll, I'll walk into the kitchen and I'll be rubbing my chest. Cause that's a coping thing that I do. I just rub my chest really hard mm-hmm. when I'm anxious and I rock back and forth and my mom will say, Hey, Hey, are you anxious? And I'm like, Oh, uh, yeah, I guess I am anxious. And, but meanwhile, my blood pressure is skyrocketing and there's all these bad things that are happening inside of my body because I'm not realizing that I'm anxious. And just mm-hmm. having something pointed out allows me to go do my coping stuff to bring my blood pressure back down and to deal with whatever it is that's causing me to act that way or to feel well, that For way. sure. Like sometimes an outside force does really help when you can, because then your own coping mechanisms might be able to engage when you can look at yourself and go, oh, okay, yeah, this is something that I know that I deal with and that I have processes for. And it's also good to have support. Like I, I just, I personally just believe that community uh, is a big part of the health, a big part of just health in general. Yeah. And like, you know, like having people around that actually care how Mm -hmm. you're doing is in itself beneficial. Like, even if they can't do anything to help you, like, you know, because so I mean, and I, listen, I, or just be there, just be silent with you. I do that a lot. When I get overwhelmed, I just get quiet. When I'm depressed, I don't really want to talk, but I don't really want to be alone. I just right. want someone to hang out and chill with me and let, do some crafts maybe and not, not, not get into what's going on until I'm ready. Yeah. So it's been, it's been a process, but I mean, my, my coping mechanisms at this point are pretty advanced. I don't, I don't see a therapist very often. I'm pretty self-contained. Well, what I are do your believe mechanisms that you that you use. A lot of them, well, like just simple ones. So, like I, this is, and this is one that a lot of people with ADHD develop. Since I have difficulty with memory, if I want to know where something is, it always has to be in exactly the same place. Right. So, if I put it in another place, the old, hey, I'll put it in a safe place. I might as well just throw it away. <laughs> I know. Like, I did the same thing. Cleaning my yeah, room right. is always a scary proposition. 
<laughs> right. So it's just like, yeah, organization <laughs> is difficult. I minimize chaos. So like all of my clutter is pretty much on a desk, you know, like it's not my favorite thing, but it's not an entire room. You know, it's not like things are way better than they used to be. And a lot of this is about incrementally finding ways to be a little bit more effective. You know, like I'm not as disciplined as I'd like to be, but that doesn't stop me from trying to work on ways to find ways to be more disciplined. Mm -hmm. Like it's just, because it's such a struggle with ADHD to do anything with routine if you're not a routine driven person. Yeah, it really is. And routine is one of the things that we need to help us. And it's one of the things we can't really do without treatment or help or mechanisms. So I have just found ways to exist that I don't need it. Like, and a lot of it is developing the personality where I am just good at going with what's happening. So like chaos is something that I I do really well with, which has helped with certain careers, you know, just because my brain, like the other day I was on the phone with a friend and I set off the smoke alarm, uh, just some, uh, you know, just a sensitive smoke alarm. And I just very calmly and collectively mentioned it. And like, you know, we dealt with it. Whereas my friend who was much more anxious than me, she was like, I would have lost my mind. And I'm like, yeah, I just... It's just, it's the, to me, it's not even, it's just another thing that's happening. You know, this happened a lot when I was working like at the prison, you know, guy had a heart attack. I had to tackle a dude once. My heart rate didn't really accelerate until the adrenaline flow came in. Mm-hmm. Like I was just like, oh, I guess I've got to take this guy down now. And then I just did. Like, <laughs> yeah, and just, and I think that's a benefit of living with this brain where to me, it's like, well, this was always a thing that could happen. You know, like yeah. the adrenaline does come in and because that's just a physical reaction when you do something like that. But I do remember like when we would train, uh, I, you know, I was a movement officer for a while at the prison and we would train all the time. I was in a lot of the training and it was always, to me, it was just fun. You know, like, so it's a, uh, I, I find that like, I actually personally find that as a mode of brain, I feel like ADHD it, it was selectively chosen as an evolutionary trait because when you look at us, as humans, back when we were in a tribe, a lot of these modes of brains would actually be beneficial to the group. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, with ADHD, I have a chance of noticing things other people won't, but I also have a chance of noticing things everybody else does. But we don't need everyone else to notice the thing everyone else does. We do need someone who might notice that there's berries out of the corner of their eye because that can help feed everyone. Right. You know, like, and that's just thing, like, insomnia is useful because somebody has to stay up at night to make sure tigers don't steal the children. Like that's just a job you need. So having people who don't need to sleep and at night is really helpful. But now because of the way society's built, we treat these like they're disorders when we needed that for so long. I've always like, You're only survived. scared of the dark. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, please go. I was going to say I've always um I've always thrived more in bus- in places where there's a lot of chaos like when I, that I can go in and take over and and manage like at the arbiter is a good example the newspaper at Boise State University when I was a student there I was able to build around my strengths and my weaknesses and build this awesome system that was able to take the arbiter into producing the, the newspaper online instead of 
um, online every day, which now we're just like, duh. Now it's like every <laughs> minute the newspaper is changing online. But back then people are like, we don't need to do it every day. And what are, you know, we don't need to be doing podcasts and videos every day. We don't need to be doing social media. That's stupid. No one's going to want to do social media with journalism and all this stuff that I, my brain saw it. Like, like you're saying the berries out of the, the corner of your eye, like, no, mm-hmm. this is happening. Like this is happening and we need to do it. Even though no one believed that we needed to do it. And half the staff quit when I got elected editor in chief, you know, the people mm-hmm. that stayed and the people that I hired, we did it. And we did, we did this incredible thing because my brain just works like that. Fireworks going, ideas left and right, problem solving, no problem. Chaos is my, you know, make chaos my bitch. I have no problem with it. But now I'm in a job where I love my job because I get to work with people who have mental illness, but it's hard for me because there's no um, ceiling to crash through. There's no advancement, really. It's just, you're in the job. And that's hard for me because I want to see the berries and I want to contribute to the business and I want to be, you know, have people with me on a team doing cool stuff. So it's really hard for me for that part of my brain. But the part of my brain that's relational and has empathy, which I think living with mental illness gives me tremendous empathy. I'm loving this job for that reason. And it's just interesting to see like the different kinds of situations we can fit ourselves into. Absolutely. Like I, cause I don't consider it like things like ADHD and that kind of stuff. I don't really consider them a disorder, you know, mm-hmm. like that's a cultural affectation and a judgment that doesn't really exist. Like I process and, uh, and experience information differently than a lot of other people. And it's, you know, neurodivergency, I guess is a nice casual way of saying it, but it's just another way of being, you know, like it's, we are more similar to people with, uh, uh, that have autism a lot of the times. And I don't even notice when people have autism because I actually find people with autism make a lot more sense to me. I, me too. I, I you know really what? like to work with people with autism. Yeah. Like, it's not like, I don't even know what the problem is. It's like, oh, they clearly communicate things and they need things clearly communicated. Yeah, this is great. Like, I don't have to guess because it's easy to be wrong. You know, like, it's just like, yeah, they're just friends. Like, I put friends tell me they have autism and it's like a thing you feel like you should notice, but it's like, I don't, I think it's great. We get along great. I don't like, I understand the challenges that go with autism are very different a lot of times than ADHD and there is only some overlap, but I have found that there's enough similarities in the modes of thought that the way we communicate and process information is a lot more similar. Well, autism like ADHD is a wide range of different kinds of, 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 have you heard of Dr. Amen and the um, seven types of ADHD? No, I don't think I have. Oh, I will send you some information about that. I think you, uh, there's a test you can take online and really they're selling products. So in the end, it recommends products, (laughs) but it is interesting because the book um, outlines like each of the seven types of ADHD and you can take the test to figure out which ones you have. And then it has everything from how you should eat to supplements you should take to how you can organize your life to better fit your brain. So I think it'd be something you'd be into. Yeah, that's super cool. Yeah, do that. Yeah, super, super neat. Dr. Amen's yeah. one of the first ones I found um, when they, di- they diagnosed, uh, diagnosed me ADHD in college. And I'm like, I'm not ADHD, but I was trying to take tests and I couldn't take tests because the, if the door would open or someone would be like tapping their finger on the, on the desk or any small thing going on would distract me and I couldn't focus. I could not take the test. Oh, I can't test. I'm actually just a really good cheater. It's obvious that I'm intelligent and I know things. I'm always good at my job and I'm actually a trainer at most jobs. Mm -hmm. But like to me, I'm training people how to do the job. I'm not, I'm not 
making you recite details. Because I feel like anything you can look up, I don't need you to memorize right away. You'll eventually get it. But I do, there are ways to do things that are easier. I, I'm usually in the restaurant industry and that's a very chaotic element that I'm comfortable in. And a lot of people stress out and I don't. So it's like, so it's really easy for me, but I, I can't test. So like at the Cheesecake Factory, you have to get the test 98% correct to have the job and you only get to take it like two or three times. And I just cheated. Like, I mean, I'm not going to pass this test. There's 200 questions. So I'm just going to cheat because I know that I'll do the job great and they don't really care. Like I do, but whatever. Like, it's just not beneficial. And, and then I was homeschooled. So I never learned the trait a lot of modern students have of memorizing and then purging information, which is also useless. I just don't know how to do it. Yeah, that's why I like majoring in social science and communication in college because it's all arguing. It's a lot yeah. of reading and then it's arguing your points. So I was made for that stuff. But actually, by the time I got to math at the end, I was kind of relieved because it actually had an answer. <laughs> I didn't have to yes, fight with anyone about real. it. This concludes the first installment of my interview with Maelstrom. Next week, they share their journey on blossoming into a non-binary queer person and help shed light into the queer community, including the dangers and benefits of being a queer person. And we discuss the law that requires athletes to verify their gender. Next week, Maelstrom and I also discuss the intricacies of maintaining an online community, including the art of arguing and on how the internet helps shape your mental health on social networks and more. So I hope to see you then. Bye for now.